0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, I'll talk to the head of the Ohio Restaurant Association. In a little over 20 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend will cover
1: a number of topics. Coming up, an all-call to former presidents and their VPs to check for classified documents at home. We'll verify whether there are actual consequences for breaking the Presidential Records Act. Some say Ohio's new voting law is a solution looking for problem. We're taking their concerns to the Secretary of State. $2.9 million settlement in a hazing case that made national headlines. It's not the end. Family members say it's not about the money. It's about the future.
0: That's in about 22 minutes. And I'll wrap up the hour talking with a doctor about February being American Heart Month. First up on Columbus Perspective on the phone with me. John Barker who's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. How you doing? I'm good. How about you? Good. Thanks for talking to us. Tell us about the Ohio Restaurant Association.
2: So we're a, you know, trade association, business trade association it represents all of our restaurants really across the state, our independent restaurants, our mid-sized restaurants, mom and pops and even the chains. We uh, we work with everybody.
0: We checked in with you a number of times during the height of the pandemic to see how things were going. Uh, obviously, 3 years of a lot of ups and downs. How are things going these days with the restaurant industry?
2: You know, things are definitely better than they were in uh, 20 and 21. 2022 was a little bit of an odd year because we still had remnants of um, COVID around, and uh, so we had some, you know, some months that were pretty rough, uh, mainly because we had a hard time getting employees to uh, to come to you know come to work. And uh, so that has progressively gotten better. Um, we're still short anywhere between about 10 and 15 percent of uh, where we need to be for restaurants to be fully staffed. And so you'll still notice that when you're out at restaurants where it still looks like, you know, people are a little bit overwhelmed who are taking care of you. And um, it's not because they don't want to. It's just, you know, almost all restaurants that, that we talk to across the state are still shorthanded. So, that, you know, that, that puts a bit of a crimp on on their operations. They're not able to for example, have all the tables open that they might want to. And, um, you know, and then as we kind of look even at this summer, one of the things that uh, happens know, you start getting the warmer weather, you need a lot of young high school and college kids to work, you know, the uh, you know, kind of like I call the resort areas, attractions, people working you know, out on patios. So we're, we're trying to gear up and get people to come back to work.
0: Word of mouth is such a big deal in, in an industry like this, isn't it?
2: It is, and, you know, so restaurants um, really depend on how well they take care of that customer. And for some people, that means you actually go into a restaurant, you sit down, and and the moment of truth is that server, right? How well do they take care of you, and then does the food get cooked properly and all that? And, you know, in most cases, that that turns out pretty well. But anymore, it's everything from food that gets delivered or food that gets taken out and and picked up by people. Um, You know, we have a lot of these what I call fast casuals where you come in and you kind of do all the ordering on your own. It down the line and then, then you take it out so restaurants have become a little different here and in in really since the pandemic so much more of our food is to go and uh, delivered. Uh, those numbers are the highest in any time in recorded history and so um, you know restaurants have to be good at a number of things and, and really take care of that customer and uh, that part hasn't changed but what you have to do to make it happen has. Uh,
0: how big is the industry in ohio and how does it compare to 2019 before the pandemic
2: yeah, we're, um, you know, we're down a little bit from before the pandemic, but coming back uh, in the state of Ohio, we have about 550,000 people that work in the industry, and um, that's down, you know, from where we were. We're calling it back, um, you know, in, in terms of number of restaurants, we have about 22,000 restaurants across the uh, across the state, and um, that number's down a little bit, but uh, we've actually seen so in the last four or five months, we're seeing the net amount of openings exceed the closings. And so so that's a good sign, right? We're, we're seeing people who are coming into the industry and deciding, um, you know, maybe the time is right uh, to, to reenter the, you know, the industry. And, uh, and that offsets. We are still having closures, and you notice them in your neighborhoods, and you see restaurants closed, you see it in the newspaper. And, you know, that's, that's uh, really difficult to watch, and um, we're doing everything we can to try to intercede with the uh, restaurants that are struggling, and then try to help them out. For example, right now we have the employee retention tax credit, which we're trying to get uh, all of our restaurants to take advantage of, because that is a really serious program that can make a difference. And those who have already taken advantage of it tell me that's how they got, you know, that's how they got through the fall, and that may be how they get through the winter until we have better weather and and, uh, and total sales pick up a little bit.
0: What do you see uh for the future of uh downtown restaurants in big cities where the workforce has still has not returned with a lot of people working from home?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. We track that uh, very carefully by the month and um uh, what we're seeing the national numbers, Dave, are about 50% of the offices now have people coming back into them and that's been steadily increasing, but it's not, you know, it's not high enough um because, you know, before the pandemic, you know, you had those offices typically occupancy people in there 80 90 percent and so that drop off has put a lot of pressure on restaurants that made their money in our downtowns across the state and um, you really see it particularly at breakfast and lunch which is really driven by office workers if you're in a if you're a great restaurant you're downtown near a stadium or near a theater or something like that you're probably doing okay because your business model really drives off of people coming in for an, an event uh, but when you look at, uh, you know, a lunch restaurant that really used to be supported, say, for example, in downtown Columbus nationwide, you know, had thousands and thousands of people in their office buildings, and now they do not. So you look around that area, there's not as many restaurants right now.
0: Talking with John Barker, he's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. What about small towns? And I'm thinking places like Galleon, Jackson, Salina, Ironton, places like that. How, how are the restaurants doing in places like that?
2: Um, some of them are doing all right, particularly if they were able to figure out a way to shift a little bit to that takeout customer. And in some cases, you know, maybe they got into delivery. And so that really is how they got through the worst of the worst during the pandemic. And now they have to continue with that model. I, you know, I think what's happening is people just changed so much during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, we all have in our mind nostalgia and what we would like it to be. We go sit at the counter You know, a mom and pop little restaurant, and uh, there's still you know opportunities for that, and there's still those are out there. But younger customers today, uh, you know, what they pick? They pick places like Chipotle, right? They pick Panera. They pick you know things that are much more modern, sushi restaurants. I mean, they're much more you know uh, willing to kind of try different restaurants and food delivery styles, and so restaurants have to adjust, even in small towns. You know, where you have a lot of young consumers, you got to adjust, and uh, that's our advice to them is to. Use technology. You really focus on their menu, uh, and meet the customers. You know where they want to be, and if you do that, you know you can make it. Whether in a in a big city or a little city, you just you know have to be very good at it.
0: Do the food delivery places are they pretty much everywhere now? In in the smaller towns of ten or fifteen thousand people, do they have a multiple choice of delivery uh, places to get their food to their house?
2: You know, you know, it really depends on the city. The smaller you get, the less that there is of that. And so what we see is restaurants sometimes doing their own delivery are really asking people to come and pick it up on their own because picking up the food, that's the, the most profitable for the restaurant if somebody comes and picks it up. When you do the deliveries, you do have to cover a delivery charge, which can be as high as 30%, which is a lot. I mean, it just it really changes the economics for that restaurant. They either have to charge a lot more money or lose money on that transaction. Um, but you're seeing more of Uber Eats and you're seeing Postmates and you know, DoorDash, these kinds of folks that are out there doing this and they do a pretty good job right um, that was how we all survived for a period of time right. and now it's just another it's just another option but you know that delivery piece you know for a sit down restaurant might have used to be 1 to 2% of their sales it was just an anomaly now it's 10 15 depending on the concept it could be 20 25% of their total sales so you got to get
0: good at it it really is an amazing journey when you look back over the last 3 years because as you mentioned these delivery places key to keeping some of these places open and yet in a way they can almost act like i don't want to say an enemy but a force against some of the things that they're trying to do to move forward
2: yeah you know they have their own business model and they need to make money so they charge a lot for it and um you know that's why we, we talk to restaurants and say you really got to do that analysis break even analysis on whether that's the thing for you to do or, or to just focus more on takeout or maybe even you know some of our like in dayton there's a uh, small group of people that uh, went together and put together their own little uh, inside Dayton delivery service and, and put that together at a much lower cost than using the third party guys so you know innovation and uh working hard and being smart that never goes out of style and uh, that's what you know restaurants are having to do these days it's just harder to make money it just it really is um people might have it in their minds what it's like to run a restaurant that is very profitable and you know you just sit around and count the money and that is not the case um for many people that first restaurant up to, you know, maybe they get two or three restaurants, they are scratching and sometimes they don't even pay themselves just to make sure the restaurant can, you know, make all of its own, its own payments, everything from the lease payments to the, you know, food. For example, uh, our food costs in this industry have been up anywhere between about 12 and 18% month after month going on the second year now. Um, and uh, anybody who knows anything about a business when your number one item like that is going up at those percentages, that's a very difficult existence, and so um, you got to get good at everything.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, with wages on the increase and on the retail level, the, the you know the cost of a dozen eggs have more than tripled in the last couple of years. Uh, it's that's just uh, more obstacles for restaurants to have to deal with.
2: Dave, we're having the eggs delivered by Brink's trucks these days. So. Uh... <laughs> no it's uh you know if you've been to the grocery store what you have noticed uh is food cost up in those mid-teen numbers you know going up and up and up and some items up higher than others of course right and so grocery stores have passed all those costs on what's interesting is the value equation has turned out to be a little bit better at restaurants because restaurants are a little less willing to take those gigantic price increases because they have a very intimate relationship with their consumer right so We've seen restaurants more in like the six seven eight percent range They've taken it up year over year whereas grocery stores are in the uh, mid teens so uh, that's helped a little bit that's made um, you know on you know we're all paying more everywhere we go, uh, but you're paying a little less of an increase when we had most of the restaurants you go to.
0: Talking with John Barker, president of the Ohio Restaurant Association, California passed a law to create a board that oversees fast food with wages and working conditions. But there's been an effort by the restaurant industry successfully to put that on the ballot statewide in California next year. But between things like that and unions uh, moving in with Starbucks, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on restaurants from those fronts as well.
2: You know in an industry like the one that we've been dealing with here in the last couple of years this is the worst time ever to have these things arrive because again if you know anybody who has a restaurant just ask them they'll they'll you know walk you down through their profit and loss statement what their cash flow is like they, they are really struggling and so these efforts that are coming out these are all you know attempts to kind of take away the ability for business owners to have to operate in the real market and, and when you're in the real market you have to take care of your people you have to pay a fair wage you have to uh, make sure you have a full set of benefits depending on the type of restaurant you have and if you're not you're not going to be able to attract and retain the best people most of these things that we're seeing out there whether it's you know unionization of restaurants or you mentioned this fast act in California these are from people who have nothing to do with the industry at all who want to regulate you know business and really regulate everything that they see out there and uh, restaurants because it's so much made up of independence you know it can be it can appear from the outside to be something easy to sort of uh, go after and uh, you know our restaurateurs in California pushed back on this right and said no we're not we're not taking this and uh, they were able to get it on about to let you know let the public choose on something like this once they understand what this thing's all about setting up an artificial wage in California for just fast food restaurants which is just amazing because you think about who's in the fast food restaurants working it's our high school and college kids, and uh, they want to set a starting wage for high school and college kids at twenty-two dollars an hour, um, which you know would be wonderful if you and I were in college, right, or high school, <laughs> to make that kind of money. But no business can operate like that. right? these are people that walk in with zero skills, and uh, so it's you know paying a real minimum wage in California, you know probably something like fifteen would be more, kind of the market wage in, in California, but running it up to twenty-two and to put all these boards in place to regulate this. Um, it's just going to drive people out of that state, you know, it's, uh, and that's, that's what I think you'll see if, if this thing goes through. But fortunately, it's put off until both, uh, till uh, more than a year from now.
0: That kind of debate is interesting to me, and I know that you spent more than 20 years as an executive with Wendy's, and there's kind of two sides of an argument with that. One is these fast food restaurants, the workers in places like that, Those were never intended to be the kind of jobs that would provide a living wage. They're more for kids and people new in the workforce to develop their skills. And then there's the other argument that says if you're a business person, you should expect to pay your employees a livable wage.
2: And I tell you, in most of the restaurants um, where you have adults or you have people who have made it more of a career, that is the case. So, for example, at all the uh, restaurants that that, um, have have servers, people that serve you at the table, the average amount of money that that individual makes, average, is $27 an hour. And again, you can arrive with zero education and zero skills, not even a high school degree, and be a server making $27 an hour. And so, you know, we kind of flip this whole thing on its head. You know, th- this industry is the opportunity for a lot of people who don't have all the other advantages. You know, they don't have a lot of education. They don't have training. This is a place to come in and, and make a good wage. And then if you decide to stay, you can so quickly move up through this industry. You can move up and, uh, you know, and be an assistant manager, a manager, a regional manager. And you're starting to, you know, talk about jobs that pay anywhere between $50,000, $70,000 a year. And a district manager can, you know, get a company car. I mean, you could do really well in this industry. And just you can talk to thousands of people who have been in it and have done that. And, um, and you know, again, the, the, the folks that are criticizing this have never worked. i worked. In restaurants when I was younger, um, and of course I've had different roles in, in my years at Wendy's, and I will tell you that franchisees talk about opportunities for people all the time. That's what they talk about because, you know, they've got their opportunity, and they run mo- they run most of the fast food restaurants, the franchisees do, and so they, they really truly believe in that. And um, so, you know, we think uh, you know, we think that smarter minds will prevail on this one.
0: Just a couple of minutes to go here with John Barker, who's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. I did want to ask real quick about the price of food at places like Wendy's and McDonald's and Burger King. I don't go often to places like that, but one of the more recent times that I did, it was a little bit eye-opening, the cost, compared to what it would have been maybe five years or so ago. And I'm concerned about lower-income folks who do uh, make a stop there, perhaps for their families. Do you have any thoughts about the price at places like that?
2: Yeah, you know, as I was mentioning a minute ago, the input cost on the food side is running at 41-year highs uh, for everybody, right? And, of course, it doesn't matter if you're serving filet mignon or hamburger or taco. It doesn't really matter. And so the you're talking about, you know, uh, these mid-digit increases year-over-year year on food, wages and labor going up at rates we haven't seen really in modern history, rents going up, utility costs going up the business model for restaurants has imploded compared to the way it was before the pandemic. And so that's the reason you're seeing much higher prices. Now, most restaurants do have, you know, something they call value menus and kids meals where they do give the consumer an opportunity. So for example at Wendy's, they have a four for four, uh, meal deal. They have a five for five. They have, they have some ways to try to continue to provide value, you know, for consumers and, um, I think most restaurants try to do that. No matter what kind of restaurant, you know, have a range of prices and let people uh, let people decide. But yeah, the input cost. You know, people ask me all the time, are, "Are we in a recession? You know, what do you think about what's going on?" I said, "Our industry is in a recession because we've never seen increases come to, you know, to uh, to these restaurants in, in really modern history. You'd have to. I mean, the only time you see something like this, you'd have to go all the way back." Depressionary areas. that there weren't even that many restaurants back then so right. we've never seen anything like this yeah
0: and so uh, as we wrap up here john what do you see happening in the next you know obviously this summer could be a great summer you've got many many more of these dora these outdoor recreational areas where people can drink and eat and right on the street in cities and those are growing all the time and once the weather turns you know that's that's going to be a great opportunity
2: and I think that's what we're all looking forward to, get through the worst of the weather here probably for another month or two and um, just kind of make it through that. And then when it gets warmer, people are out a little bit more. You know, the American consumer has remained pretty darn resilient, um, and that's that's the one thing in this sort of recessionary era that, you know, we're in right now that is kind of stumping everybody, right, with everything that's going on and corporate layoffs and all that. This consumer spending has been strong. It's been pretty strong in restaurants and hotels and airlines and travel and um, attractions and concerts. What I call that whole hospitality space has continued to be pretty strong, which is encouraging, and we think, you know, if if it hangs in there and we get the better weather, that we could have a nice uh, spring and summer.
0: John Barker, president, Ohio Restaurant Association. Anything else you'd like to add?
2: I would just say, you know, we have a couple big big events coming up. We have Valentine's coming up, which is big in the restaurant industry, right? And, uh, you know, there's a lot of fun things you can do and go out and celebrate that. Uh, one of our great uh, businesses, White Castle, does a lot around um, Valentine's. Uh, they, they they do some some fun stuff, but a lot of our restaurants put deals together for people, and it's not just on Valentine's Day, right? You can you can make it any time within the week. I think I checked with Hallmark. As long as it's within a seven days, Dave, of Valentine's it counts. So um, you know don't uh, you know don't miss out on that big opportunity.
0: That's right. I remember a couple of years ago we talked about how when you and I were kids eating out as a family even once a month was a big deal and now these days of course everything has changed and yet the pandemic kind of took that away from everybody and I think that the appreciation of the restaurant industry soared after that because everybody realized what a big part of their lives it's become.
2: It has because you know we all have uh, people in our family who work in the restaurant industry you know it's just it's the place where so many of our young people in our families work and Some people stay in it and some people make a living. We have all these food shows on television today, which make it, you know, kind of glamorous. And, um, you know, it is a lot of fun, right? You talk to people and, you know, you talk to somebody for 10 or 15 minutes, it almost gets to, what have you been doing lately? Well, you know, I found two new restaurants or I have this new brew pub I like or have you seen this new bar down the street or, you know what I mean? It's just, it is part of our life. And um, fortunately here in Ohio, we have a really robust and wonderful uh, culinary scene Really, in in all of our major cities and many of our smaller cities. And so we're fortunate to to live in a free state.
0: It's outstanding. Uh, John Barker, he's the president and CEO of the Ohio Restaurant Association. Thanks for your time today, John. Sure, appreciate it. Better, Dave. Take care. Need to visit the Ohio BMV? Go online first. It could save you a trip.
3: It's now easier and more convenient than ever to get what you need from the BMV online. Need to renew your driver's license? Renew online. And if you need to renew your vehicle registration, visit one of our new BMV Express kiosks or go online. If you do need to visit a BMV agency, use the Get In Line online tool, also found on the website, to save your spot and minimize your time waiting. For more services available online, check out bmv.ohio.gov.
0: This is Columbus perspective on the fan, courtesy of our sister station WBNS 10 TV. Here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 11:30 on 10 TV.
1: Thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. We start with the investigation into classified documents showing up where they don't belong and the push for transparency. FBI agents found six more classified documents in President Joe Biden's Delaware House. That's on top of the documents found at the Penn Biden Center. And it's important to remember the documents are from Biden's service as vice president of the United States. And classified documents were also found in former Vice President Mike Pence's Indiana home. According to Pence's longtime attorney, a small number of documents with classified markings were accidentally boxed and then taken to the Pence home. He says he was unaware of the documents. The boxes had been taped up and they were not opened. Here's what some of Ohio's U.S. lawmakers have to say about this escalating situation. What we want is consistency. We, what we want is this uh, one standard. That doesn't seem to be the case.
5: This is going to be crucial, I think, to the special counsel's investigation, is why did the president have these documents? Who did he show them to? I can think of no reason why the president should have taken home as, as a senator or as vice president any
6: classified documents. This is a problem, and I mean the good news is that Vice President Pence, a Republican President Biden, a Democrat have done the right thing they've acknowledged they have them they have um, they they have you know, been public about it. President Trump, who had many more documents was a, was less than honest and tried not to do much about it at all but put that all aside we've got to fix this so so these documents are are better so we' these 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 um, elected officials don't take them essentially out of the room. I mean, I see classified documents regularly in a room about 200 feet from here. I never take them out of the room. I don't I don't photograph them. I
1: don't tape them or anything. So um, that's the way this should be done. You might be wondering, as all of this develops, what are the actual consequences facing the national leaders involved? Abby Larico has our verify report.
7: In the cases of the 45th and 46th president, and now the most recent vice president, the Presidential Records Act has come up a number of times in headlines related to these documents. So what is it, and can someone actually face consequences for breaking it? We turn to these sources here to verify. U.S. Code defines presidential records as materials or portions of materials, quote, created or received by the president or the president's immediate staff or a unit or individual of the executive office of the president whose function is to advise and assist the president in the course of conducting activities which relate to or have an effect upon the carrying out of the constitutional, statutory, or other official or ceremonial duties of the president. Law since the Watergate scandal, the Presidential Records Act means those official documents and records of presidents and vice presidents belong to us, the citizens, not the officials' personal property. The National Archives lays out guidance for how administrations should keep track of these records and hand them off upon leaving the White House. However, Professor Michael Greenberger explains there's nothing baked into the law to force an administration to follow it.
6: The assumption, I'm sure, was when they passed the Presidential Records Act that once they declared the rule, no president would be so brazen as to say, I'm not going to follow the rule.
7: That's why there's also discussion of the Espionage Act. Violating that is a crime. So that's what the Department of Justice invoked in the warrant to retrieve documents from former President Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate when they say he failed to comply with the Presidential Records Act.
6: The Espionage Act says that uh, the president cannot uh, make these highly classified documents available to the public because that would endanger the national safety.
7: Because President Biden and now Vice President Pence are turning over documents voluntarily, Professor Greenberger explains there's been no need thus far to use the Espionage Act. However, that could change if it's determined the documents found in their homes or offices could compromise national security. With your Verify, I'm Abby Larico.
1: The trial of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. 10TV's Kevin Landers was in Cincinnati for the opening statements and talked with Householder. Larry Householder, once the
6: most powerful politician in the Ohio State House, arrived in federal court in Cincinnati to face for the first time a jury who will decide if he's guilty or innocent of a pay-to-play scheme where he's alleged to have traded $61 million in campaign cash in exchange for helping bail out First Energy to the tune of $1 billion for two of its failed nuclear power plants. Householder told 10 TV in Court, quote, I feel good. It's been two and a half years to tell my story. When asked what it's like to be called a crooked politician, he said, it's hard to sit here and hear one side of the story. It's been difficult for my family. I've never been nervous, haven't had any anxiety at all. In the words of Paul Harvey, now you'll hear the rest of the story. When asked if he was nervous about the FBI
1: wiretaps, the government says proves he took bribes. Householder said, quote, not in the least bit, just listen. 10TV's Kevin Landers reporting there. There are years of history related to this case. 10TV's Andrew Kinsey walks us through how we got here.
3: Let's start here. First Energy had been asking Ohio lawmakers for money for two nuclear plants. According to the FBI, First Energy routed more than $60 million to 501C4 groups. The complaint doesn't directly name or charge First Energy. Instead, refers to it as company A. Here's why this is important. 501c4s are not required to reveal their donors, sometimes referred to as dark money groups. According to the complaint, those groups were controlled by then Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder. Allegedly, Company A sent most of the money to a dark money nonprofit called Generation Now to support candidates Householder chose, in turn helping him win his bid to Ohio House Speaker. Larry Householder is hereby declared and elected the Speaker of the House of Representatives. In 2019, Householder earned the title of 26 Republicans and 26 Democrats. Shortly after House Bill 6 is introduced, it provided a billion-dollar subsidy to fund the original two nuclear plants. It passed the House and Senate, and then in July of 2019, Governor Mike DeWine signed it into law. The complaint lists a number of dark money groups, including Generation Now and political action committees where money was allegedly sent. That is not illegal, but what is unlawful is how the money was allegedly spent. One, to get householder elected and elect others who would help him acquire the subsidies. Two, the FBI says householder used the money for personal benefits, like paying off a lawsuit and to fix a house he owned in Florida. And three, it alleges money was used on advertising and other efforts to pass House Bill 6. As a result, householder and four alleged co-conspirators were arrested and charged in a racketeering and bribery case.
4: What is likely the largest bribery money laundering scheme ever perpetrated against the people of the state of Ohio.
3: Two of those men pleaded guilty. A third, longtime lobbyist Neil Clark, died by suicide. Three months later... The resolution
6: is adopted and Larry Householder is expelled from the Ohio House of Representatives.
3: Householder is expelled from the Ohio House. And you know, I'm, I'm innocent. Only Householder and former GOP chair Matt Borges have challenged the case against them. They say the truth will set you free and I look forward to it.
1: You can count on 10TV to keep you updated every step of the way during this trial. Look for coverage right here on air and at 10TV.com. It's a settlement two years in the making in a hazing case that grabbed national attention. $2.9 million is now going to the family of Stone Fultz. But the parents tell 10TV's Lindsay Mills this is not about the money.
8: I think he would tell us he's proud of us. Uh, he knows we have the fight in us and we won't stop and that day in the hospital and making that promise to him that we would end hazing and we wouldn't allow this to happen to anyone else. Sherry and Corey Foltz founded a foundation in the name of their late son, Stone. In March of 2021, the 20 year old Delaware native was a sophomore at Bowling Green State University when he died from alcohol poisoning in a Pike fraternity hazing ritual. Now the university has settled with the Foltz family, $2.9 million money the foundation will use to end hazing
0: with our foundation we have done several different speaking engagements
3: and part of our training is just as simple as alcohol poisoning
8: in september Corey and sherry spoke to student athletes at denison university in granville with the settlement money they are taking their story to more places younger students we need to teach them about the you know peer pressure and belonging we need to give them a sense of you know how to handle that before they get off to college and you know have their own responsibilities and, and becoming an adult and making those decisions. While a settlement may appear to be the end of the case for the Fultz family they are just getting started. Obviously the the money has nothing that means anything to us because it's not going to bring stone back
1: but what it does allow is us to move forward Lindsay Mills reporting hazing is a felony in Ohio thanks to Collins Law, which went into effect in 2021. We asked the Fultz family attorney about the law's impact so far.
0: It's hard to tell, right,
6: because um, we haven't had any terrible tragedies, at least, you know, in Ohio since then. But we have had uh, terrible tragedies nationally. Um, I think that Collins' law goes a very long way towards education, transparency, mandatory reporting, and elevating criminal penalties.
1: The law was named after Colin Wyant, who died after a hazing incident at Ohio University in 2018. Not only does it make hazing a felony it also makes failure to report hazing a misdemeanor, and it requires colleges and universities to address hazing according to state standards. Multiple groups are raising concerns over Ohio's new voting change. We take those issues right to the person in charge of elections in Ohio. we hear what the Secretary of State has to say to people who say the changes are a solution looking for a problem.
0: thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
1: Welcome back. Many voices are raising concerns over the newly passed voting law in Ohio. The law takes away some forms of accepted photo ID at the polls. The law also eliminates early voting on the Monday before election day, eliminates most August special elections, and shortens the deadline to apply to cast absent ballots by mail. Supporters say this will help prevent voter fraud and that some of these changes the local boards of elections asked for. Other groups, like the League of Women Voters, say it's a solution looking for a problem.
5: We care about election security and integrity, but this doesn't do that. A strict voter ID law would only stop voter impersonation, which does not exist in this state. So we're calling on the General Assembly and the governor to fund boards of elections to educate voters on all of these changes to make sure that no one falls through the cracks.
1: The Franklin County recorder says that There is concern that veterans might fall into that category. He pointed out that the law makes it so that veteran IDs handed out by their office won't work at the polls.
4: What we have to do is, you know, we
2: might possibly have to reach out to all these veterans and say, hey, this ID law that was passed, um, it'll negate your ability to use that veteran ID card that you got the same day from our office, uh, you know, a few years ago, the one that you've used to vote in the 2018, 19, 20, 21 and 22 elections.
1: Under the new law, you can still use a U.S. military ID, Ohio National Guard or U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Secretary of State Frank LaRose told 10TV that any voter can vote absentee without having a photo ID. I also recently talked with Disability Rights Ohio about these changes. The nonprofit corporation is worried that this new law could potentially affect those with disabilities and their ability to exercise their right to vote.
4: There's
3: inadequate access to transportation, for example, for for this population. So even if a photo ID is going to be free moving forward, um, a lot of people are going to have to travel to their local BMV to get a new ID. And that's just not feasible or realistic for a lot of people. And Mm -hmm. so that's a major barrier that's gonna be placed in front of this population, many, many people with disabilities across the state.
1: And with all of these concerns surrounding the voting law changes, we know you are wondering how it's going to impact you when you go to the polls in the next election. We took that question right to the person who's in charge of elections in Ohio, Secretary of State Frank LaRose. Here's his message to those who are worried it's going to be harder to vote. Partner with us.
5: Uh, it's important that we, as the Ohio Secretary of State, our boards of elections, voting rights groups, uh, that we're all working to make sure that Ohioans have accurate information. For example, instead of beating the hyperbole drum and and scaring people about these things, let's make sure that Ohioans know whether it's this coming May or next November, the next time that they have an election. Uh, if they don't have an ID, there's plenty of time to get one right now, and it won't cost them anything to get one. By the way over 98% of Ohioans already use their photo ID when they come to vote. That's the poll uh, that we've done among our boards of elections. And so the vast majority of Ohioans are already using a state ID to vote. But also let's say your dog eats your ID on election day or you lose it or whatever else, no one will be turned away. In that case, you'll still be able to cast what's called a provisional ballot. It'll just be put aside. And then you'll have a few days after the election to go to the board of elections and prove that you are who you say you are. And then of course, Uh, There's always absentee voting in Ohio, which is very convenient. My wife and I vote by mail frequently, and the same rules that have always applied continue to apply to absentee voting. And so you can vote from the comfort of your home uh, and, and, and cast a ballot easily that way as well. So it's important that, you know, we can advocate for the things that we care about. But let's not scare Ohioans with some of these sort of inflated fears and about uh, hypothetical scenarios and that kind of thing. Let's make sure that Ohioans have accurate information and know that it is easy to vote and it's hard to cheat
1: here in the Buckeye State. We also asked LaRose to respond to people who say these changes are a solution looking for a problem.
5: It's 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 kind of like saying that um, carjackings are rare in my neighborhood, but if one happens, I I, I want to make sure that the police investigate it. I want them to take steps uh, to prevent that kind of thing from happening. And voter fraud is rare in Ohio. That's great news, and uh, we all should want to keep it rare. And that's really what things like this are all about: making sure that we can keep voter fraud rare in Ohio and help boost the confidence that Ohioans have in our elections. And by the way, uh, repeatedly polls. Uh, nationally, and here in Ohio, have shown that public support for requiring a photo ID it ranges between 70 and 80%. It's hard to get 70 to 80% of Ohioans to agree what day of the week it is, but a large number of people support the very simple idea that you should prove who you are when you go to cast a ballot.
1: LaRose's office encouraged us to talk with the local boards of election leaders about these changes. Look for continuing coverage of this ongoing debate in the weeks ahead right here on Face the State. There is a push to make more people eligible for medical marijuana in Ohio. Senate Bill 9 would add more qualifying conditions including arthritis, migraines, Autism and chronic muscle spasms. The bill also aims to create a division of marijuana control as part of the Department of Commerce to provide licenses and oversee dispensaries. There's also a bill that would allow Ohioans to make and consume their own moonshine without a permit. It's Senate Bill 13. And under that bill, you aren't allowed to sell the moonshine, and a household of two or more people can make a maximum of 200 gallons a year. A similar bill has been introduced before. And it did not pass. Senator Sherrod Brown will have competition this next election. Ohio lawmaker Matt Dolan announced he will run for U.S. Senate. He's the first Republican to enter the race. Dolan is from the Cleveland area. You might remember that last year, Dolan ran for former Senator Rob Portman's seat and lost. J.D. Vance, who former President Trump endorsed, won. We asked Dolan if he thinks that's going to play a role in the election next year. I am my own person. Uh,
0: I run on what I believe is the best for Ohioans, and I don't rely on outsiders uh, to to set the direction of my campaign or become dependent upon it. I will continue to do that. All the reasons I said, I have the the experience in the public and the private sector. I have the uh, conservative record that has produced results. I can prosecute Sherry Brown, and I can actually get things done in
1: Washington, which is what Ohioans really want. We talk with Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown, who says he's not worried about Dolan's bid for his seat in Congress.
6: I think that um, I've won my races uh, by pretty good margins. I think that in the end, um, I'll win again because Ohioans know I, I stand up for them, that I'm on their side, that I, I see my job through the prism of dignity of work that people that work hard ought to be able to get ahead. I will always make that fight. And the voters of Ohio, they, they know it. That's why I've won these races by pretty comfortable margins over the years.
1: New evidence revealing how deadly the pandemic was for those dealing with cardiovascular disease. I'm talking with an Ohio expert about what this means for the future fight of COVID-19.
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors.
1: Between business life, social life, and her best bud, Loki, Beverly has a lot to focus
2: on, especially while fighting Stargard, a blinding retinal disease. But she's not fighting alone. For 50 years, the Foundation Fighting Blindness has funded research into treatments and cures for blinding retinal diseases, providing hope to people with vision loss. And for Beverly, winning the fight means focusing on what's closest to her. The Foundation Fighting Blindness. Together, we're winning. Help us end blinding diseases at fightingblindness.org.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
1: New evidence reveals the number of people dying from cardiovascular disease is seeing the largest increase in quite a few years. And they were in the populations of Asians, blacks and Hispanic populations. The report released this week shows a big jump during that first year of the pandemic. More than 928,000 people died from cardiovascular disease or CVD. And this was in 2020. And health experts say this was the largest single-year increase in nearly a decade. Most of those deaths appear to be correlated with the people most often infected with COVID-19. I talked with Dr. Nahush mokodam who's the director of cardiac surgery at the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center and immediate past president of the AHA Board of Directors, about why minorities are being greatly impacted.
5: We think it's being driven by the fact that Uh, lower socioeconomic status, um, does limit your access to healthcare. Um, And that access can be limited by the patient. It can be limited by society. It can be limited by any number of other factors. Uh, But this has been well described in a lot of disease states, including cardiovascular disease.
1: And cardiovascular disease continues to be the number one killer globally, taking the lives of more than 19 million people around the world each year.
5: The medical community is is unfortunately aware of this, and we've continue and will continue to try to educate people that health uh, healthcare is important, that we will provide it free of bias, that we will take care of you regardless of your socioeconomic status or background or race.
1: And Dr. Mokodom says, be aware of the symptoms of cardiovascular disease, including chest pain, shortness of breath, perhaps the inability to exercise, or numbness in your jaw or your arm, particularly your left arm. If you feel any of these, you want to make sure you get help, call your provider, and get some answers. You know, lots of families rely on federal assistance programs to help feed themselves and their families. Casey Decker with our verify team looked into claims that big changes were coming to those programs that could severely limit what types of food are eligible. The Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, SNAP, helps millions of Americans pay
4: for groceries. But some recent viral posts claim that Republicans are proposing changes to the program so it covers fewer items, omitting staples like flour and fresh meat. So let's verify. Is there a bill in Congress that reduces what foods are eligible for SNAP? Our sources are Congress, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the Iowa House of Representatives, and the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. This claim actually stems from a bill proposed in the Iowa State House, not Congress. Among other changes, it would replace the list of SNAP-eligible foods with a more limited list from a different program. That program is designed to fight specific nutritional deficiencies, not hunger generally. So only an extremely specific list of products, down to the brand, size, and flavor are eligible. Staples like fresh meat, flour, and white rice are not on that list. But this is a state bill in Iowa, and it hasn't passed. It's only been introduced. On top of that, even if it did pass, Iowa would then need to get permission from the USDA to change the food list, since SNAP is a federal program. And in terms of changing the food list on a federal level, we checked the current list of bills in Congress, and none of them so far address that issue. So we can verify, no, there is not currently a bill in Congress that reduces what foods are eligible for SNAP. There's only an Iowa-specific proposal with your
1: verify i'm casey decker thank you for joining us here on face the state today and we wish you a great week
0: that's again tracy townsend courtesy of our sister station wbns 10 tv from their sunday morning public affairs program face the state a new edition can be seen this morning at 11:30 on 10 tv
9: the alzheimer's association and the ad council present the story of tom and levi tom is the smartest man i know He's been a professor at two major universities, been a teacher for over 40 years. One day, he told me that he was having um, problems in his classes. I think one of the students had asked the question and he didn't remember the answer. And I also noticed that he was letting his class out earlier than they were supposed to let out. And he was telling them that he was doing it as a favor to them. But I think in reality, he just wanted to get out of there. Um, I was really starting to worry because I saw something was wrong.
1: Levi and I talked about how it would change our lives, but he was there beside me, and my love for him was just immense.
9: When something feels different, it could be Alzheimer's. Now is the time to talk. Visit alz.org slash ourstories to learn more. A message from the Alzheimer's Association and the Ad Council.
2: (laughs)
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me is Dr. Patrice Nickens, who is a medical officer at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. How are you?
9: I'm well, thank you.
0: Thanks for talking to us. Uh, February is American Heart Month. What does that mean for you?
9: Well, this is such an important time. Um, It's early in the year, and we try to focus on education so that all Americans can can follow heart-healthy behaviors. So the American Heart Month, we hope to tell people about the importance of heart health and how to manage it. Heart disease, as you may know, is the leading cause of death in the United States, but it's largely preventable. And a big part of preventing heart disease is knowing your numbers and keeping uh, and controlling any risks.
0: Yeah, so I kind of get the impression that no matter how you feel, you may be carrying around symptoms within your body or numbers within your body that might tell a different story that you should be aware of.
9: Yes, yeah, so some of the know your numbers, and I'd like to go through that. But um, So um, there are several numbers that are are important to know because... It's not just knowing what they are, but you can do things to uh, reduce risks if they happen to be um, high. Uh, so, for example, the the numbers we want to focus on are your weight, your blood pressure, your blood sugar and cholesterol, whether you exercise, whether you're eating well, getting enough sleep, not smoking, and managing stress. Now, among these numbers that you should know. Blood pressure and blood sugar and cholesterol are things that are, um, you can have um, no symptoms and that they be in a range that needs treatment. So it is important that you see a doctor to know some of your numbers, specifically blood pressure, blood sugar and cholesterol. But the other numbers are things that you can, you can check at home and have a daily routine to make sure that your numbers are um, optimal. By reducing risks, you can reduce um, the likelihood of your having a heart problem um, as much as 80%. So this is such a, an important message because following heart-healthy behaviors, you can live longer and healthier.
0: Dr. Nickens, when you see somebody that you know is headed down the wrong path, at what age do you really start to get concerned about them?
9: So it's never too early to practice good um, heart-healthy behaviors, um, and it's never too late. It's unfortunate um, that heart disease is the primary cause of death in the United States. This is uh, important for women as well as men and almost at every age group. So, everyone should pay attention to this message. Taking care of yourself is important, but this is something you can share with friends, family, and your children. And then you asked specifically, what should you look for? Well, if you're overweight, then you're likely to have not just a weight issue, but you may have high blood pressure or have um, problems with your blood sugar or cholesterol. Um, so, weight is an important indicator. Uh, not, not, um, it, if you're overweight, it makes it's really important for you to see the doctor and to get some help and to make sure that you know your numbers. But even if you're normal weight, you can still have high blood pressure or um, diabetes or uh, have high blood sugar. So um, again, many of the important signs or symptoms are silent. Um, so for blood pressure, um, a blood sugar, and blood cholesterol, you won't know unless you see a physician. If you're overweight, and then the, as we age, we tend to um, increase the likelihood of having um, some of these numbers go off the normal range. And with our attention, we can return to, um, you know, a normal and, and um, healthy range. Another area that to focus on is for women, um, women of childbearing age. So um, in the first place, um, being healthy full pregnancy protects the mother as well as the uh, developing fetus. But we now know that one out of um, four pregnancies in this country are complicated by either pre-existing cardiovascular disease, heart disease, or developing um, either diabetes or high blood pressure during the pregnancy. So it's really important to make sure when you, if you're thinking about getting pregnant, to consult with your doctor, make sure that you're healthy. This will protect your health outcomes for you and for your child. But certainly once you are pregnant, it's really important to see your uh, doctor and make sure that they're checking and that you know your numbers, what's your blood pressure, what's your blood sugar, what's your cholesterol, and um, that you're following through to have a healthy pregnancy.
0: Talking with Dr. Patrice Nickens, she's a medical officer at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Well, it's uh, fortunately, it seems like a lot of these numbers can be brought down by doing the same thing. Uh, you know, losing weight can have a big impact on some of the other numbers. And I, I just read an article the other day about dry January where people don't drink during the month of January and that if you go a few weeks without it and you're a moderate to heavy drinker, you might drop eight points off your blood pressure just by doing that.
9: Uh, yes, it's really amazing um, how um, simple, healthy behaviors is favorable to your cardiovascular uh, health and to your sense of well being overall. You mentioned alcohol and alcohol in moderation, um, one drink a day or less, you know, that's a good behavior and not a problem. But excessive drinking can um, result in high blood pressure. But um, getting enough sleep, Trying to address uh, stress in your in your daily lives, exercise. Um, exercise is such an important opportunity because exercising not only lowers your blood pressure, it relieves stress, and you look better and feel better emotionally, feel better when you exercise. We mentioned smoking, that of a habit, that is something that exacerbates, um, it's a multiplier. If you have one risk and you smoke, it's, it's not just like two, but it may increase your risks fourfold. So if you don't smoke, wonderful, and please don't start. But if you are smoking, it's really important to try to drop that habit. One of the things that we talk about all the things that you can do is that the um, NHLBI or the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has a website, hearttruth.gov, and there there are a number of materials that are scientifically based, you know, based on uh research evidence of the things that we're talking about, but more just as important there are pamphlets and leaflets of practical things you can do. You know, how do you go about exercising? What is a great diet, like the DASH diet? What does that mean and, what, and how do you do that? So there are a lot of tools available and also work with your physician. Um, you may have resources locally that can help you um, follow uh, um, healthy habits. You know, if you happen to be someone who maybe is um, overweight um, has not been exercising and, you, you know, you, you know that your family has a history of high blood pressure. These All of these things may sound overwhelming, but it really is not. This is um, something you can control and, you know, you go through these materials. You just take one step at a time, one day at a time. So if you're relatively inactive, you can, um, you know, increase your activity Try, um, you know, uh, setting goals that increase your activity slowly over time. But your healthy uh, behavior will help you live longer and healthier.
0: Talking with Dr. Patrice Nickens with the uh, Division of Cardiovascular Sciences Heart Failure and Arrhythmias Branch at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. Are there subtle indications that maybe people have with the way they feel or things happening within their body that can tell them that there might be something going on with her heart.
9: Um, absolutely, uh, this is especially true for women. So we can help. We meaning the medical, you know, your doctor, your healthcare physician can help you with things that you may not be aware of, like your blood pressure, your blood cholesterol, your blood sugar. But how you feel is very important, and often. Uh, As an example, women that have uh, signs and symptoms of a heart attack, their symptoms sometimes are um, atypical, just a feeling of um, profound feeling of tiredness or indigestion, shoulder pain, simply not feeling well. These could be signs of a heart attack. Again, we have tools to help you identify those things that you, it's um, best to have reviewed, know these kinds of materials, and have, like a, on your refrigerator, a, a 911 uh, chart that reminds you of things to do. But people should pay attention to your body. You will know that you are um, feeling 100% or that something is wrong. Um, having said that, um, healthy behaviors are easy to do you can start on your own or you can start with family you can start with, uh, con- with consulting your physician uh, urge everyone take charge every 34 seconds a person in the United States dies of heart disease cardiovascular disease of some kind the important message is that it is preventable And these healthy behaviors, knowing your weight, maintaining a healthy weight, getting exercise, not smoking, know your numbers, your blood cholesterol, your blood pressure, your blood sugar, reducing stress, eating well. These are um, activities that will um, protect your heart health and allow you to live longer and healthier.
0: Talking with Dr. Patrice Nickens, medical officer at the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And again, doctor, where can folks go online to find out more
9: information? Yes, the uh, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute has a website, hearttruth.gov, G-O-V, for government. So that's heart, truth, hearttruth, h e a r t t r u t h dot GOV. There are materials that will help you.
0: Okay, excellent. Dr. Patrice Nickens, again, thanks so much for your time today.
9: Thank you. And I again, I want to urge all all of our listeners, um, heart disease is an important preventable cause of death. Take charge and protect your heart health and live longer and healthier. Thank you so much.